Talking Football with Rob Daniels and Vince Tracy. Talking Football. So welcome everybody to our podcast. Today is the 12th of December 2022. Okay, our weather, not bad, a little bit on the gloomy side. It's sort of um, very autumnal, moving towards... Uh, winter, if I'm honest, and uh, of course we're heading towards Christmas, so lots to do this morning, been out and about, uh, people are Christmassy and um, places look nice, but that's not what we're here for, we're here to find out how Leeds United got on in the quest to Spanish football and whether they could conquer the mighty Elche near uh, near Alicante in the on the Costa Blanca. Okay, good morning to you Rob. First of all, how's your weather and then tell us about the mighty Leeds visit to Elche. Yeah, hi Vince, hi everybody. Yeah, the weather's fine down here at the moment Vince as you say it's not it's not sunny or anything but it's not cold. And it's very pleasant actually for a walk about. Um, during the day you've got to wrap up on the night though. But uh, yeah, Leeds against uh, Elche against Leeds on Thursday night. Um, as you know, I mentioned in the last podcast, I was actually invited along by some Elche supporters to go and watch it with them. And it was very good. It's the first time I've seen Leeds, actually, since the last time I saw Leeds. They were still in the Championship when they uh, got promoted that season, a couple of seasons ago. So it was really nice to see Leeds play. They beat Elche um, 2-1. It was um, Elche went in front, but Leeds got two goals in in quick succession. And because it was a friendly match, they had unlimited substitutions. So... Uh, all of these regulars played. <clears throat> Liam Cooper, the captain, um, he had a good match. Um, but he went off because they, they were just changing players around. And Elche have got, they're apparently they're on their third manager this season because they're at the bottom of La Liga. They've only got four points so far. And it was they're on the third manager of the season. And he basically wanted to see all the different players in the squad play. So Elche were changing players all the time. But no, it was, it was a good match and it was a good atmosphere. There were 12,000, over 12,000 people there. And um, more than 2,000 of those were lead supporters. They were given their own part in the um, top of the stand on one side of the pitch. And apparently there were 20 um, coaches came down from Benidorm that had specially arranged to go and see the match, which happened um, 20 years ago when Leeds played Valencia in the semi-final of the uh, Champions League. Thousands and thousands of lead supporters, myself included, uh, went through to Valencia on coaches from Benidorm. So, yeah, it was a good atmosphere all around. Um, yeah, good match, really. Um, yeah, it was good to see. And it was, it was very nice to be invited, actually. I think it was fantastic. It was a feather in your hat. Um, so let's hope they're listening to our podcast and uh, realise that we've made you a priority. Thank you for that, Rob. As we look first at uh, the referees in the World Cup, uh, because obviously we've had shambolic quarterfinals. Uh, they really have been, uh, and not all of them, but, you know, there's been two in particular where the referee has been 
decidedly iffy. Now, the first one that we're going to talk about is the referee who has gone on a personal crusade to give out as many yellow cards as he possibly could do in the quarterfinal stages of the World Cup. He's a Spanish guy. And uh, Rob, do you have any details for me on this particular gentleman? Um, not on the screen at the moment, Vince, but uh, I do know who we're talking about because I watched the match. I didn't actually pull him up as a named referee, but um, yes, he had, had a howler. Actually, he didn't have a very good World Cup all round. Actually, it was his second match refereeing, and the first match he refereed was in the group stages, and he also had a bit of a howler that match as well. Um, but yeah, the, the, the refereeing standard in general has been lacking somewhat, hasn't it? Compared to the standard of football, the refereeing, the standard of refereeing hasn't really been up to the standard of the football, has it? Well, it's been awful, um, you know, not to put too fine a point on it. Uh, by all means, you expect uh, referees to be sort of um, uh, mistaken now and again because they're only human beings, because obviously they're not robots. However, uh, while I mention robots, I put into one of the robotic uh, answering machines that we have uh, in uh, the artificial intelligence today. And I asked the question, how are FIFA refs chosen for the World Cup? And the answer came up, FIFA selects the referees for the World Cup through a rigorous selection process. First, referees are nominated by their national association to be considered for the World Cup. Then FIFA conducts evaluations and assessments of the nominated referees, including their physical fitness, technical ability and knowledge of the laws of the game. It then says FIFA also considers the referees' past experience and performance in international competitions, as well as their ability to work well as part of a team. Based on these evaluations, a shortlist of potential referees is selected and then further assessed during a training camp. Finally, the final list of referees for the World Club is selected by the FIFA Referees Committee. So, uh, what do you think of that as our first bit of information then? Does that give you a little bit of um, sort of quality of selection for starters what do you think of that well that's a selection procedure vince isn't it i mean i knew more or less what the um, selection procedure was um, prior to this podcast which is why when we mentioned last week um stephanie frappart the um the female referee i knew that why, why she was chosen it wasn't because she was female it was basically because she qualified in every sense of the word but they have to um <clears throat> They have to choose referees from all of the different federations throughout the world. And the standard of refereeing, the standard of football in, in some of these um, continents <clears throat> isn't the same. They can't have all European referees, for example. They can't have all Premier League referees. Or, well, not that they're all the best either. Or Spanish referees, as we've shown. That guy was called uh, Antonio Mateo Lajos, by the way, the Spanish referee. Yeah. Um, but they've got to have a selection of referees from throughout the world. And the selection process is, as you mentioned, at the end of the day, the final decision is made by this uh, FIFA referees committee. Um, but they've got to choose referees somehow, and that is the way they do it. Um, unfortunately, some of the referees haven't been having very good matches this World Cup, and it's sort of stood out, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, um, with if you look at the sort of 
ridiculous bits coming out after um, FIFA have obviously said they've uh, g- giving full support to the world referees and whatever uh, but I see that the uh, Spanish guy has now uh, done one he's done a bunk um, he's been sent away and he won't be officiating anymore um, there are 129 match officials and they are saying they're doing the most difficult job of all of us, either here in Qatar or at home. They are top professionals. They are motivated in an incredible way. Well, um, from the game that I saw, which was Argentina's game against Holland, um, I am really quite um, concerned as to what they actually uh, look at their psychological uh, state because I, I think that I think the guy had some sort of a, a mental block that game. He certainly lost control of it, didn't he? Well, yes. Um, I don't really know why he was chosen because I, so I can't remember which match it was in the group stages. But he had a very bad match then as well, um, and he, he obviously wasn't um, at his best. But he was chosen to uh, officiate that match, and he did, and he made a right hash of it. I would say. Um, he'll realise that himself. I mean, referees do realise when they uh, have bad matches. But, um, yeah, he, he's um, no longer there. There's only a handful left, actually, because what they've got to do, and this is, again, where they made a mistake uh, in the Portugal match against Morocco, is um, they've got to choose referees who've got no um, no link to any of the countries actually taking part. Now, in the uh, Portugal-Morocco match, which Pepe, um, Big Pepe, the uh, defender who used to play for Real Madrid, who's still playing at the age of 39, actually. Um, yeah. He's doing very well. But he was absolutely furious about the choice of referee for the uh, Morocco match because it was an Argentinian referee. And, of course, Argentina had were involved in the other quarterfinal um, at the same... Well, they would have... There was an involvement, if you like, in uh, the referee being Argentinian and Argentina being in the other... Um, quarter-final. So that sort of slipped through the net, um, which these things do, but it didn't do Portugal any favours and the Portuguese team are extremely uh, disappointed by that. Disappointed is the wrong word, probably. They're extremely angry about it, but um, it happened. So uh, what can you do? Well, well, you see, the thing is, you can't just keep saying what what can you do. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, I, I, I'm asking you for your opinion, but I mean, people at those high levels can't keep shrugging the shoulders and saying, "What can we do?" I'm just looking at uh, Pierre Luigi Colina, the chairman of the uh, FIFA Referees Committee, said that the referees had been told to protect the players and football's values. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, He said that simulation was a lack of respect towards opponents and said referees would also be on the lookout for players who provoked contact to try and win a penalty. He added that there would be no room for dissent and that any kind of stoppage during play, whether it be for injuries, time-wasting or goal celebrations, would be compensated in stoppage time. Well, okay, they got some of that bit right. But, um, you see, I think the problem is, and I agree uh, that it's a very, very difficult job. I've said for many years that it doesn't make the sense to be paying such a difference, the differential between a referee's money and the money that the players are getting at the levels that they're working at. So, Mbappe, one and a half million a, a week. 
Um, a referee, probably if he gets a couple of grand, he'd be doing well. Um, well I, you that, know. That, 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 that again in this World Cup, um, all of the referees have been, were given a minimum of $75,000. We're talking American dollars here for actually participating. And for the first time, the lines referees, um, we can't call them linesmen anymore because they aren't all men, but they're, they're, yeah, the people who run up and down the line with a flag, they were paid um, a minimum of $25,000 to actually um, go and um, be there. And they got paid on a match basis. Um, for example, in the group stages, um, a referee will get paid $3,000 for <clears throat> refereeing a group stage, and that goes up towards the final. But uh, you know who were... Uh, Luigi Colina is the uh, head of the referees, don't you, Vince? Um, is that uh, Tolly Tad? Shaved head. Yeah, um, yeah, he's got his eyes bulging out, hasn't he? That's the one, yes. Looks yeah, a bit he, like he, E.T. Uh, went home and he stayed there for quite a few years and then he's come back to referee. That, that That's right, yes. But uh, he actually did referee a World Cup final himself and he was always in the Champions League and things like that. Very I thought well he was very referee. good, actually, when he was refereeing. I've got to say, I thought he was good. But yes, well, he, he's now the um, the head of the. Obviously, he's got to be the spokesperson as well, so he, he's got to take some responsibility, hasn't he? For um, but yeah, that, that's who we're talking about. We're talking about one of the probably one of the most famous referees of uh, the last few generations, at least. One of the very interesting things for me is why on earth. They can't get it so that people can hear the conversation between the VAR um, committee or spokesperson or whoever they decide to make it the contact point and the referee on the pitch. Because the trouble being that while there's silence, there's complicity. There's the chance of it. And if you listen, as we've said before, to uh, the referees talking in the rugby matches, you know exactly what's being said and why the decisions are being made. So um, until they get that bit right, there's going to be a lot of people, and I'm going to be right at the head of the queue, who are thinking, why aren't they telling us how they make the decision? Yes, indeed. I think that's got to be the next, well, one of the next steps forward, hasn't it, Vince? They've got to be far more open. I mean, we've all seen that they are wearing these microphones and headsets, speaking with each other. Um, maybe we shouldn't be letting on every single part of the conversation because otherwise it will probably become extremely tedious and a lot of people probably wouldn't understand exactly what they were saying. But um, at least give clear um, a clear reason for some of the decisions that they make, even if it's just a, an offside, a regular offside that they've decided. You say that... That decision was offside because such and such a player was in front of such and such a player, <clears throat> so therefore it's offside. A, a brief explanation so that everybody knows how they've come to that decision, but the way things are at the moment, we when they make decisions that none of us can understand, we immediately suspect something uh, strange is going on in the background, don't well, we? Well, you Which have might to. Well be for you have in to. In the dark. Exactly, and uh, the trouble is... If it was a normal world, if we can make it that um, sort of as it was a couple of years ago, I don't think maybe even then we would not query the fact that nothing's being said because we clearly hear the referee from the world of rugby explaining to the man on the field why he's seen what he saw. And then they make the decision and then the referee gets on with the game. 
also to the members of the crowd and also to the viewing public and the commentators in the studios. Everybody gets to find out why the referee has made his decision and they do make some wrong decisions in rugby as well. Um, but probably not as many because they do go through it very, very carefully. Yeah. But at least they give a, a reason why, don't they? Which I think is important. And at the end of the day, they've done surveys actually uh, over, over the period of football, I suppose, and sport generally. How many people think that referees are neutral and how many people think that the referees um, are, are not particularly neutral? And unfortunately, the referees don't come out on the good side of that uh, very often. A lot of people do suspect referees of being not being um, 100% neutral, which they should be. And we should be able to trust them, shouldn't we? If a player goes out onto the pitch, they should be able to trust the referee 100% to um, to referee the match in a fair and square way. But they, they don't have that confidence in them, I don't think. OK, let's have our second talking point then. Okay, I gave you um, a name, Vittorio Pozzo, an Italian uh, manager. Uh, I think he'd also been a player beforehand, and uh, I asked you whether or not you knew what his claim to fame was. Any ideas? Well, I've heard of this man before, Vince, because um, he is well known in the annals of history, if you like, of football. Um, he was He's the only manager of a national team who has won two World Cups. Um, he was the Italian manager. He was the Italian manager for a very long time, actually. First time in 1912, then in 1921, and then from 1929 until 1948. So we're going back to quite a long way in the history of football. But he was the Italian manager when Italy won the World Cup in 1934, and again when Italy won, won the World Cup in 1938. And um, it's, he's the only manager who's actually managed the same national team to win two World Cups. Amongst many other things that he did, actually, he was a pioneer of uh, early football. He was born in 1886 and he uh, passed away in 1968. So, although we're talking a long time ago now, he lived till he was 82. And he was at the forefront, if you like, of a lot of these developments that have turned football into the game it is today. But yes, um, he, he managed the same Italian team to win world, two World Cups. Okay, and of course, uh, the uh, reason why he becomes important is that France and their coach, Didier Deschamps, uh, are chasing this uh, particular history now. Les Bleus, as they're called, the Blues, uh, can become the third country to win back-to-back World Cups and join an exclusive club. They're so exclusive. There's only uh, Italy and Brazil, but... Brazil changed their coach, whereas uh, Italy didn't. And of course, having just been to Italy and talked to some of the taxi drivers about the fact that um, Italy weren't taking part, the lot of all the people we were talking with all expressed the desire that um, Italy had been there. And uh, I likewise think that you know a World Cup without Italy is not really quite. Um, as we would prefer it to be. For me, you know, I like to see Italy there. Um, so this could be the um, second manager to manage the same team twice, but he also won the World Cup as a player. 
right. um, in 1990. So uh, I think he will be, he, he will beat all of the records, if you like, hands down, if France managed to win it, of course. Yeah. Um, ju- just in this business of how the game changes and how we all accept things and um, at the moment the referees are the stumbling block uh, going to the day when uh, sort of I was playing football uh, we used to line up we used to always have for the goalkeeper two fullbacks three halfbacks and five forwards and the Italians seem to come in to negate attacking game and uh, his system was a 4-3-3 uh, which was then the modern football uh, when the Italians sort of took that and started playing with his method. Um, of yeah. course, you know, if you look at the great England sides of the older days, you'd have always thought of Tom Finney on one wing and Stanley Matthews on the other, and then a big centre-forward ready to, um, you know, head in uh, from the middle. Um, so he, he was very, very forward-thinking, wasn't he? Oh, he was. I mean, he was involved in, um, again, with a lot of um, people involved in football around that kind of era. Um, they sort of developed tactics which are still in use today in some circumstances. I mean, one of his, I think, was it was the 2-3-2-3, which was called the W um, formation, which is basically you've got two, um, you've got two centre-backs in the middle, like two sweepers. But then you have three um, in front of them who would now possibly be called um, defending midfielders, mm. two midfielders and then three attackers. And it, <clears throat> it worked. I mean, that is basically um, what won Italy, I think, the 1934 World Cup and also the 1938 World Cup, although other teams had tried out using that method. And apparently Pep Guardiola um, used a similar kind of system when he was at Barcelona and at uh, by Munich because it is a system that still works. Yeah. Um, but yes, it was this by uh, Vittorio Pozzo who actually, yeah, rather than before Vince, as I always say, somebody kicked the ball up front, everybody else chased after it. Yeah. And this is when they actually started developing tactics and um, it started becoming a more interesting game, I would say. So we've got him to thank for sort of putting all that kind of thing in motion. And just to show everybody that. Uh, there's always been politics about uh, the reason why we didn't really hear too much about this poor guy is that um, that unfortunately he was about when Italy had a dictator and um, obviously uh, he was identified as being partly associated with Mussolini, which is very, very sad, yeah. really, because, you know, I have no idea of this man or his, pol- or his, his politics, you know. Apparently, yeah, apparently that is um, one of the controversial things about a lot of things that happened in those days. I mean, any German, for example, who happened to be good at anything in those days was automatically not recognised because they automatically assumed that they were going to be followers of the party. Um, in Italy, the same kind of thing because they had Mussolini and fascism. But, um, and therefore, a lot of these, uh, a lot of um, possible sort of um, positive input into football was not really recognised as such in his own lifetime, really. But there have been people who've looked into it. I mean, there's a very famous uh, football writer who's still alive, actually, I think, called Brian Glanville. I think he's in his 90s now. But he uh, actually did um, a lot of research into this because he's a football writer. He thought it was important. And apparently Pozzo wasn't a party member. He just happened to be Italian, a patriotic Italian in those particular times. 
that he wasn't interested in politics, um, that he didn't he didn't go against the regime either, which means that he was classed as being in favour of it. But apparently, he wasn't a political man at all. He just happened to be a patriotic Italian who was a very good football manager. But his uh, name was sort of uh, smeared, if you like, because of the area he happened to live in. Um, but again, that's part of history, isn't it, Vince? It's uh, one of the things that makes history interesting, is finding out these things. Absolutely. OK, let's move to a different talking point now. And uh, this one, again, always interesting. It's Talking Football with Vince Tracy. And Rob Daniels. Okay, so uh, obviously everybody focusing now on the uh, semi-finals. We will come to that in a few minutes. Um, there has been other football going on, and um, again, it, it's probably wrong for me to bring this up, but it just it niggles me um, when you look at the uh, the way they're trying to, you know, promote and elevate women's football all the time. Uh, and yet we've got the um, the championship, uh, which is just below the Premier League. And many of the teams play the sort of football that really is um, worthy of probably the Premier League. And yet, you know, it's always been uh, sort of sidelined now because of the split between the Premier League and the English Football League with the other three divisions plus the National League. So I thought we'd have a look at the um, parachute payments, which are the financial payments that are made to teams that have been recently relegated from the Premier League. And they the payments that are intended to keep um, the relegated team adjusting to the lower revenues they will receive from playing in a lower division and to prevent them from going bankrupt as a result of their relegation. And they're paid over a period of several years and are based on the team's performance in the Premier League. So, you know, we're talking about quite a lot of money. And for teams that are playing in the Championship, they all want to come back and play in the Premier League. So if you look at the moment, uh, Rob, at the Premier League, um, sorry, the Championship, um, we have Burnley, who've only just gone down. Um, Sheffield United, they've only just gone down as the first two clubs uh, with quite, well, five points now as a gap between them and um, Blackburn in third place. But um, what's your take on the, um, the on the championship? Well, the championship <clears throat> is very, very um, interesting, I find, personally. Um, I wasn't particularly happy when Leeds were in it because it is extremely difficult to get out of. And that was one of the things that makes it so interesting, Vince, I think, is that all of the teams are extremely competitive and they are all trying to... The, the ones who have just recently gone up and the ones who are not having a particularly good time are trying not to get relegated. But the majority of the teams that um, spend a lot of time in the uh, Championship, their ambition is to um, get one of the first two positions to get automatically promoted to the Premier League because the playoffs between third position and sixth position is not exactly a lottery, but um, in, it is not unheard of. It's quite often that the sixth team goes into the Premier League rather than the third team. Um, 
So, yeah, it's extremely competitive. There are 22 teams, so they have to play more matches as well. Um, a lot of well-known names. A lot of the teams have been in the uh, Premier League before, or if not in the Premier League, in the old first division. Um, there aren't that many unknown teams, if you like, if you uh, know a lot about English football. And they get a massive support as well, um, as they do in the further, further down, uh, League One and League Two. They also get a lot of support from their uh, local supporters. And the further down you get, Vince, as you know, they, they more become like a, a, a staple of the <clears throat> of the local community, don't they? They become like a community hub to the local football team. Yeah. So they mean a lot to the support. But, um, yeah, the, the uh, English Football League is definitely worth a look at, um, especially the Championship. If you get a chance to watch any matches, which they do put on, um, in fact, there's a special... Um, a special program in the BBC. I can't remember what it's called now, but it's down to it's um, to do with the English football league, mainly the championship, and you can catch up with all the matches there. Um, but it's well worth watching, definitely. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like me that these women's super league games are really? It's like. Um, it, it's almost like promoting somebody from about four leagues down to immediately the virtual sort of second league to the Premier League. And it certainly is nowhere near that. Oh, it isn't at all, Vince. I mean, it's a completely different issue, isn't it? Um, it's more or less a completely different game. Um, I, I liken it quite often um, when I'm likening it to things. <clears throat> Basketball against netball. Um, because they're basically the same, similar kind of game, but basketball is a lot faster, and they uh, you could they can move around with the ball and netball. They have to they can still get the ball in the net, but they have to stand there and they can't move about. So it's basically based around the same game, but it's not the same at all, is it? No. Um, whereas the championship and all of the different um, English football league and national league, right down to the grassroots, throughout the whole of the world, I think. Um, it's all basically the same game of football, whereas female football is a slightly different variation of the, of the same sport, I would say. Yeah. It, it, can't, it can't be played in the same way, can it? No, well, uh, as I say, really, my irritability about this is that, um, you know, when you look at the, uh, the championship now, um, you probably will find about half of the teams that are in there are actually uh, from the Premier League anyway. So, I mean, if you if you look at these, tell me which ones... You, excuse me, I'm just going to turn this phone off. It's um, decided to go off. OK, so uh, we, we spoke about um, Burnley and Sheffield United. Uh, Blackburn, uh, you say, yeah, Premier League or not. OK, so Blackburn... Burn, Norwich, the, uh, Watford, Preston have been there. Millwall, um, my dad's team, they've actually been there. They were in the old first division. In the no, but hang on. But that's, yeah, but that's not the Premier League. I'm, I'm talking only Premier League. So they've not been... Ah, in, right. Yeah. So they after, have been in the top like Reading, um, QPR, I think QPR must have been Swansea, definitely were. Some, I'm reading down the list now. As yes, as OK, you know. I'm with you. Sunderland definitely were. Middlesbrough definitely were. Luton, I don't think were. Birmingham... Possibly, as we go further down, but then we've got Cardiff City, who've definitely been in. Hull City, who've yep. definitely been in. Yeah, Wigan Athletic, West Brom, Blackpool, and Huddersfield are they're the bottom teams, and they've all been in the Premier League, haven't they? Yeah. So my my point being that by looking at those teams and realizing the status of those teams. 
you're looking at uh, good good stadium good standard of football and uh, suddenly you know uh, they are usurped by the ladies game which okay uh, we can all see where it's coming from it's the americans because obviously the the americans uh, are trying to uh, take over as much of the premier league and our television and our game and everything so unless somebody says it um, it's not going to come up in the media because all these other people are being paid by them but that's how annoyed it gets me um however saying that there's a very interesting thing, of course, in the National League. So if you go from the Championship, you've got Division 1, and then you've got Division 2, and then you go to the National League, which again is another league. If you want to go out of the uh, Football League, <laughs> try and get back in. That is why it's such a difficult place um, for a team to get back into the bottom tier of the top teams, if you follow what I'm saying. Um, in this case, Ooh, it's, it's a lot of a lot of well-known names in there, Vince, as well. Yeah, um, I think we mentioned in a podcast a couple of weeks ago, actually, that Oldham Athletic, yeah, um, got relegated got relegated out of the uh, division out of League Two, the uh, English Football League, and are now playing in the National League. The first time a team that has played in the Premier League has actually gone down and been <clears throat> relegated out of the English Football League. But some of the t- some of the names in there, we've got Halifax Town, for example, Notts County, um, Oldham Athletic, Torquay United, Wrexham, um, to name just a few, who have all been in the... Um, they're all well-known teams, aren't they? They've all had, if you like, better days. But um, again, it's very, very competitive down there and it is very, very difficult to get out of again. And, it's and probably is it... And for those people, for those people that don't know the English ins and outs of all the teams and everything, um, let me just make sure that everybody is aware that if the football team does well, then a lot of money comes into the town, and usually there's a prosperity that is around the ground, uh, and that overspills into all sorts of facets of the community. So whereby uh, Rob and I might appear to be just chinwagging over this, it's not a question of just chinwagging. We're talking about um, people in society and the shops around the football ground, uh, the the uh, p- petrol stations, um, y- you know, the hotels and all the other things that go in to making football um, the sort of game it is. So uh, then, of course, you go over spill into the schools where the players go out and meet the uh, the kids and yes I think um, y- you really need to look at uh, a lot of English history the economics of England before dismissing the uh, championship league one league two and the national league and certainly those ladies teams tend to come in on the backs of the success of the um, the men's team sorry that's got to be said because that's the way it is well, I, I, I don't know if uh, I imagine they probably do have um, female football teams. All of all of these um, no, other teams. That are I, I don't think certainly not in the Premier League anyway. In the, in no, the, in no, they the don't. women's Premier That's League. What I'm saying, Vince, about are the female versions of Premier League clubs, which a lot of them, especially formed just to be the female version of Premier League clubs. They haven't actually progressed through the ranks, if you like. Well, the uh, in, the male system it's all to do with progressing through the ranks up and down isn't it at the end of the day well, well also, sort of like- if you if you listen to the pundits now 
um, you, you know, you, you can hear from the conversations that some of the uh, people in the studio have never known other types of football other than the Women's Super League or the um, Premier League, you know. And unfortunately, um, there's a lot more to English football than just the Premier League. I think uh, by by the investment of these other uh, countries, notably the Arab world and the Americans, I think there's a distortion of the values of what football can do for society. That's my opinion. I don't know about you, Rob. Would you think the same? Just look at what happened when uh, Berry. Um, football team yeah. was uh, liquidation a couple of seasons ago, which we actually spoke about at the time. Um, it was classed as a major sort of disaster for the uh, town of Bury because the, it was a very traditional football team. The whole of the community was behind it, and they got a lot of support from um, other teams that other towns that are in a similar kind of uh, circumstance. I mean, I remember once that Scunthorpe. Um, Scunthorpe Town, I think they call themselves, from not far from where I come from, actually stopped off at the Berry Social Club um, to have a couple of drinks and uh, say hello to all the people and give them support basically when they're on their way to play Blackpool. Yeah, because they felt um, they, they all felt bad for the town of Berry and Berry Football Team because they know what a big hole it would leave in people's lives. Um, a lot of people's social lives revolve around the football club, don't they? Well, and they it's do. Not unhealthy either. It's, it's well, it's, it's to do with the sport of football, isn't it? Absolutely. OK, well, now then, uh, let's go to our next talking point, which will be... Let me see. Here we go. It's Talking Football with Vince Tracy. Okay, now we've done pretty well with our predictions until we came to the quarterfinals. And I think just about everybody involved in trying to predict football matches uh, have been a little sort of uh, <laughs> disappointed with their predictions over the last uh, round of games. Um, I know we were because uh, both you and I, well, we started off with the first game. Um, so Netherlands were playing Argentina. Uh, I thought they'd win 2-1. Um, you thought Argentina would win 2-1. So you got that one right. And um, now the Argentinians, of course, are in the semi-finals. So we'll look at that game in a few minutes. The Netherlands and Argentina, Vince, it actually ended up 2 all went to penalties. Oh, the, the first two matches. No, no but I, I'm saying... So I, sorry, sorry. I, I was giving our predictions. I beg, I beg your pardon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our predictions were not... Uh, I... I I did in the earlier rounds, I think, predicted some draws, but I don't think I did predict any particular draws in this one, which I should have done, because the first two teams ended in draws and went to pens. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, Netherlands, Argentina, two all went to penalties, Argentina got through. OK, now let's um, talk about that particular game. Uh, we also have been talking about the refereeing. So, without a shadow of doubt, the referee spoiled the game, but... Um, you could feel there was niggle in that game from the word go. And uh, I thought, really, that, um, you know, the Netherlands played well enough to deserve to be in the penalty shootout. But it was almost like um, 
written that uh, Messi was going to take the team a little bit further. So, um, when it came to the penalty shootout, you had a huge uh, uh, Dutch goalkeeper um, who basically didn't get really anywhere near. It showed you the quality of the, the shootout from the Argentinian point of view. I thought the Argentinians played that shootout very well. Um, what did you think? Um, yeah, Emmy Martinez, um, the uh, goalkeeper, Argentinian goalkeeper, he he's plays in goal for Aston Villa. Uh, so uh, Aston Villa is a Premier League team, as we know, but they haven't been having a particularly good season. And um, yeah, the the goalkeeper Emmy Martinez, who, who did have a very very good penalty shootout, didn't he? He yeah. really enjoyed it. Some some ref- some as we've spoken about before, and I think everybody knows uh, some goal. Relish penalty shootouts. Other goalkeepers hate them, um, and I think Martinez he really enjoyed that one. Okay, well, um, on the face of it, you have to say that uh, the 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 one thing that stuck in my mind was the petulance of the player who kicked the ball straight at the um, the bench, if you like. Um, now. Really, I can't understand how that guy didn't get sent off. I don't care, you know, what mitigation you want to put on it. Uh, you know, to kick the ball with that sort of uh, ferocity towards the, the bench, I think, was totally un- unpardonable. And I'm surprised the referee did not dismiss him with that one. Yeah, that didn't go unmissed either in the rest of, by the rest of the world, Vince, either. Uh, I think the general opinion is that he should have been sent off. Um, but he wasn't so uh, that, that again I said there, there you go but I said there's nothing we can do about it now but I think yeah the general opinion was that uh, for doing that even under the circumstances uh, he should have been sent off but he wasn't but I mean you, you, you wonder what's going on in the referee's mind what does a player have to do to get sent off you know uh, to do what that actually did provoked uh, umpteen players uh, involved in a melee and uh, quite honestly it looked more like a rugby league um, flare-up than a football match and um, you know I, I thought that uh, there were all sorts of funny things going on I remember seeing one of the Argentinian smaller guys running into Van Dyke and bouncing off <laughs> you know I just um, you when you looked at the size especially of the the guy that scored the two goals for Holland and then you saw the attacking um, prowess of those gigantic players. Um, it's a wonder that Argentina managed to get their way through that one, I think. Well, um, it's really, isn't it? Uh, I mean, yeah, that, that guy who's scored the two um, goals for uh, for Holland, Veghorst, uh, he's called. Um, he had a really, really good match, didn't he? And... Um, yeah, I mean, so there's got to be a winner and there's got to be a loser. But in, in that match, I think it was fair enough that Argentina got through. But you can't take anything away from Holland, can you? They give it all. They give it everything. Um, and it was a penalty shootout. And as we probably will mention as we go to the Brazil uh, match, but um, at least Virgil van Dijk, the captain of the team, he actually stepped up and took the first penalty. He missed which does set a bad tone for the rest of the uh, penalty shootout, but at least he stepped up and took his. Um, and I say they, they went out fair and square. I think they can hold their heads high. Um, and leaving the World Cup, it wasn't under disgraceful conditions at all. 
Okay, if we went to the second game then, which uh, saw Brazil um, and Croatia, I knew this was going to be tight. Um, I really did think at the time this uh, will go to a 2-1. You thought it was 3-1, but um, the scores, I think, uh, they didn't reflect actually what happened because when you look at the Neymar goal, I mean, that was a piece of magic. It was a wonderful goal for Brazil. Put, putting them ahead um, and uh, I think Neymar and Brazil thought that they could just sit back and we were looking at uh, Modric thinking well you know will his legs get him through this uh, and yet I thought uh, I thought he, he played really really well uh, certainly didn't give any signs of fatigue and then I also thought the ex-Liverpool guy Lothran played a good game in this game um, but Sadly, uh, if you're a Brazil fan, you can uh, wait another four years for your next uh, crack at it. Um, and good luck to Croatia, because I think they, for me, have been the the team that look as if they know what they're doing and how they're doing it. Well, they were finalists last time, weren't they, Vince? And uh, they want to go one better this time. Um, and they're doing really, really well. Now, one thing... Uh, as you mentioned, um, it was nil-nil after the 90 minutes. Then uh, Neymar got a cracker in, actually, um, just in the uh, 106th minute. So it was an extra time. And I think they were they did look like they were quite happy to sit on their 1-0 uh, lead and not try and let a goal in, and in Brazil. But Croatia just didn't give up. They never give up. They just fight and fight and fight. And they got a goal in, the equaliser, in the 117th, which is three minutes before the end of extra time. Um, and in the penalty shootout, Modric had been on the pitch. He's 37, is Luka Modric now. He'd been on the pitch for the whole of the match. He hadn't stopped all match. And he stepped to take his penalty. He was fresh as the daisy, wasn't he? He just knocked it straight in as though he didn't have a care in the world. Yeah. And uh, that is a true professional. I mean, uh, Luka Modric, I think, is outstanding. But uh, Croatia is still in there. And I think, well, they've got as good a chance as anybody else, haven't they? They certainly have, because we're going to be uh, trying to predict this next round in a minute. So hang on. Uh, we'll go to the third game. And Morocco were playing Portugal. Now, Portugal had looked terrific in the previous game. And it's almost like, um, you know, they, the players came out and they were clueless. They didn't seem to have a clue as to how to break down Morocco. On the other hand, Morocco seemed to go from strength to strength. Um, I mean, we were watching the game and, OK, part of me was willing Cristiano to uh, uh, to have a, 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 just a flash of magic. And yet the Portuguese didn't seem to have the clue of how to get the ball to him. And then uh, Bruno Fernandes, I mean, he just seems to just whinge his way through the games. And um, in the end, I thought, well, yeah, I'm glad Morocco won this one because Portugal, at the previous game, I thought we were looking at the tournament winners. This game, I mean, when they played Switzerland, they looked cohesive. They looked aggressive. They looked controlled. They looked clueless against Morocco. Your thoughts on that one? Well, yes, Morocco again is um, another one of the surprises, isn't it? Or probably the major surprise because you've got this far in the World Cup. Um, they beat Spain, as we know, in the previous round. And I thought, and in fact, we mentioned it last time we did the podcast, that I thought Portugal would learn from Spain's lack of knowledge 
about uh, Morocco and be able to do something about it, but they didn't. They couldn't do anything about it. And uh, Morocco beat them fair and square. So Morocco are now into the semi-finals. Um, I think it's the furthest that they're classed as an African club, aren't they, uh, Morocco? Yeah. And I think it's the furthest an African club's ever been. It's I a strange... It's a strange one, that, Rob, because, you know, I know it's in Africa, but you think of Morocco more like an Arab country, don't you? Well, yes, but it's to do with the geographical um, position, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, the, the Africa, all the North African teams, which are Arab-based cultures, um, are classed as Africa with all of the black African teams, if you like, in the centre of Africa right down to South Africa because of the geographic um, situation. But, yeah, I think it's the furthest an African team has ever got. I might not be 100% certain on that, but I'm pretty sure that none of them have actually got into a semi-final before. None of them have definitely won it. Well, um, I, I... Morocco, again, they've got as good a chance as anybody else, really, because there's only four teams left and uh, any one of them could win it, really. Well, when we get to the semi-finals, I think they're going to be having camel races uh, round the track before they actually get to the game. But um, fair dues to Morocco. They actually were worthy winners against uh, Portugal, uh, who were extremely, well, extremely disappointing. And, um, OK, it was sad to see uh, Ronaldo going out, whinging and crying his eyes out. But, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, <laughs> come on. Morocco, uh, you you definitely deserve to go through. As we now then look at France and England. Um, okay, what did we both think? Well, we had to sort of say we'd we'd win three one to you. I thought it'd be penalties. Well, it was penalties really, but not the penalties the way we thought about it. Again, we'll mention the referee because the referee was awful. He was biased and not quite as uh, bad as the Spanish referee in the previous game, but he was bad as well, wasn't he? Well, he, was, he wasn't brilliant, Vince, no. Um, the, uh, well, biased, I, I, yes, I think you could possibly say that, but I mean, there's no reason why he should be biased, but he, he wasn't particularly fair with England, I wouldn't say. Well, the first goal... Um, maybe he had, the first goal, well, no. we, 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 we saw clearly what happened to Saka, and yet the referee didn't see it, nor did their VAR or anybody else. I mean, you know, do me a favour. Well, what are these fellas on? They're either on brown packets or on some sort of drugs, because if the whole world can see it, and that yet the officials don't, something's wrong, isn't it? It does make you wonder, doesn't it, Vince? Especially um, a lot of instances which, which we talk about in the various podcasts we do, everybody else in the world can see what happened, or we think we can see what happened. We can't all be wrong. But the referee and the VAR uh, officials see something completely different. And uh, that is one of the things that uh, I hope they'll be they'll have to explain sometime in the near future. I mean, if you, were looking, for, if you were looking for any sort of conspiracy, uh, when the French changed and the substitute came on, and he runs straight at Mason Mount and pushes him over for a blatant penalty. And then Harry Kane, already having scored a great penalty early on to put England back in the game. Um, I mean, you've seen this thing that um, I've sent you where uh, you've got Harry Kane being coached by Johnny Wilkinson how to take a penalty. I mean, really, it, if you'd have put... 
Johnny Wilkinson on taking the penalty there. That's what you would have expected. I mean, you know, it's Johnny either... Wilkinson, high Vince, to be honest. I mean, Johnny Wilkinson, yes, he was in it. Well, the best um, converter of... Um, in rugby, wasn't he? But I don't think he could hit the ball that high if he tried. I mean, it's, it's still travelling to the moon, as far as I know, according to all these jokes and things that go around, at least. Terrible penalty, wasn't it? I do feel sorry for Harry Kane, uh, because quite honestly, the damage was done by the team, and I think the manager, because to take Saka off, when Saka was the only absolute threat that England seemed to pose, was nonsensical for me. Uh, am I sort of on the same page with you on that one? Yes, um, but I'm not sure why he took Saka off, actually. I don't know if Saka had uh, possibly taken a knot because he did get roughed about a bit. But um, it didn't seem to be the right kind of decision at the time. And uh, as, well, as we know, Harry Kane has admitted, well, obviously it was his, him that missed that penalty, but he can't explain why. Um, it's just one of those things. Um, he's going to have to live with that. And he's very upset about it, very disappointed um, in himself and also the fact he feels that he's let the uh, the team and the country down. But um, he didn't feel any different when he went up to take it. He said that he felt exactly the same as he always does when he takes penalties. He was calm, he was confident, he knew where he was going to hit it. And when he actually hit it, it just went completely up in the air and he can't explain why. I think it must be something down to nerves. And um, Well, come on, day, he, if, if you've got Gareth Southgate coaching him, I mean, it's obvious he's going to miss a penalty sooner or later. Come on, we're, yeah. we're, only, we're only joking. Um, you know, it was a shame. You know, let's be fair about it. England played well. Uh, you get the look of the game every now and again and you've got to, if you yeah. go into a tournament, you've got to realise there's only one team going to win it. So there we are. That's what happened. Looking yesterday, actually, I haven't got the um, thing in front of me at the moment, but the list of England players and how old they will be at the next World Cup. And players like Saka, he's only going to be about 23 at the next World Cup. Um, Jude Bellingham, he's, he's still going to be in his early 20s because he's only a teenager now. So... Um, if you look at them, they should, if they're all um, continuing playing at the top level and they're all maturing in the next World Cup, some of these youngsters um, who were playing in this World Cup should really be reaching their best and hopefully, um, depending on who the manager is and what the situation is then, hopefully they'll uh, be able to give it a good shot next time. I think they can go home with their heads held high though, Vince. I think uh, they did themselves and I think they did the country proud, don't you? I do. I think that um, I, th I think that quite honestly, I think the manager got the tactics wrong. To have that much firepower on, you've got a few minutes or I don't know, a quarter of an hour left. You might as well put everybody on and lose four-one as, as as opposed to it's a knockout. So you know that that was the way I felt about it. We've got our predictions to um, get through because quite frankly, we didn't do that well in the quarterfinals. Uh, quarter so, uh, Argentine against Croatia. Give me your prediction, please. Right. Well, that is... Uh, we're talking Monday at the moment. Uh, Monday the 12th. That is tomorrow night at 8 o'clock European time. Argentina, Croatia. I can see this going to penalties, actually, as well, Vince. I can see this being 1-1. Extra time. And then... 
Argent- no, one-one extra time, and Argentina winning it two-one in extra time. Okay, and I'm going two-two, and Argentina winning it on penalties. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's going to be close, I think. And mm, uh, yes, so the, the whole the, the whole of Argent the whole of the Argentinian team they seem to be uh, a really good group to working together, and they all want Messi to win the World Cup in his last tournament. So they're yeah. going to be going all out for Argentina. But okay. we've got Croatia, and then they're not going to stand around and let them. So no, uh, it should be a good match. Not at all. Okay, Morocco play France now. Then. Where is this one going to go? Oh dear. Um, on paper, at least, you'd think that France should do it. Um, and I think that's probably, probably will work out like that because France are the reigning champions. They are very well prepared. Um, I think Morocco might have gone the distance, but again, uh, we don't know. But I will put this down as a 3 1 to France in normal time. Okay, I put it down to France 2-1 in ordinary time. Um, And I think it'll be Mbappe will score at least one of the goals. Um, You know, because he... Yeah, he he was sort of uh, snuffed out by England. I thought they did that bit of it right. Um, Yeah, but the... it was uh, Kyle Walker stopped him, didn't he? But that is one of the tactics, you see. The the French have lots of tactics using Mbappe. Yeah. And one of them to try and get uh, Mbappe doesn't really take much part in the match unless he gets an opportunity and, and takes it but it's to draw defenders away so that um, other so that other forwards are not marked he can drag two defenders with him possibly three and um, that is like a decoy sometimes I mean they have some really sophisticated tactics to the French I think Kyle Walker dealt with him extremely well, don't you? I do. I thought they did very well in that department. Um, I think also the first uh, goal really shouldn't have been scored. I think that um, they should have closed down. But it was a good goal. Um, You know, uh, give the attacker the credit for that. And I thought um, the second one with uh, Giroud, I thought uh, basically he was always going to score uh, because of the way the commentators were playing down his importance. I mean, he's a great player. He's always played well for, I think it was Arsenal, wasn't it, that he played for? Um, You know, so... I think, um, well, I should have checked this out before, but I'm pretty sure that he's the... uh, Top French team goal scorer ever now. Um, mm-hmm. After he scored a goal in the previous match at this World Cup, so yeah, Olivier Giroud um, is still very dangerous. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, shouldn't discount him whatsoever. Well, but, didn't uh, um, from Mbappe. T T Rex used to sing about him, didn't they? Didn't Didn't T Rex used to sing about Metal Giroud or something? I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, John Pickford, was it, singing about uh, singing about Olivier Giroud, yeah. T-Rex. OK, well, look, that means uh, we are now about uh, 60 seconds away from our finishing. So, um, by the time we meet again on Thursday, we will know the finalists and then we'll be sitting back looking for... Who to predict for being the world champions? Are you looking forward to that? Oh, yes, Vince. Uh, now we're getting to the uh, business end, if you like. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see who is the finalists. And uh, I look forward to speak. Well, I look forward to the matches and speaking again on Thursday. Brilliant. Rob, enjoy the games and we'll speak on Thursday. 
My pleasure as always, Vince. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Yeah,